All right, we will let the, the children take off over there to Children's Church. And while they do that, I'll invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 9 through 11 this morning. As we get into our uh, our study this morning, I'll, I'll kind of give you an idea a little bit about my personality. I didn't realize this until very early on in my relationship with Natalie while we were dating. Uh, she started pointing out she's a social worker. Uh, she was being educated in social work, so she would uh, pick up on different traits that I had, and she would point them out to me from time to time and diagnose me. And uh, one of the things that I found out from her uh, is that I have like an all-or-nothing personality tendencies. So, and some of you have this. I think we all kind of have this to some degree. But, you know, it's like one of those things where, like, it, okay, if you're on a diet, like, you follow the diet strictly or you don't follow it at all, right? So it's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, and if I fail once, oh, just, ah, who cares? Or if I'm going to have a cheat meal, I have a cheat day. Because if I'm going to cheat once, why not cheat the whole day? Like that kind of idea. Or it could be, like, think about your finances. Like, if you're going to get strict about your budget, I don't care whatever, if you do the white envelope thing, Dave Ramsey or whatever, but then you also pay attention to your budget and, like, okay, but then you splurge a little bit, and we're like, well, if we're going to do that, let's, let's buy a boat. Uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and just go all or nothing. And so Natalie started pointing that out to me, that I could not just go halfway. It was the whole thing or nothing. That's the way I viewed everything. And so when we got married, uh, I was pretty heavy. I'm not, I'm not exactly light today. But I was, uh, like, I was for, my, for my frame, I was kind of a chunky, chunky monkey. But uh, when we got married, it was like 320 pounds. When we got back from the honeymoon, and I said, okay, what am I going to do? Start working out? Gradual? Nope, I'm going to train for a marathon. That's what I'm going to do. Had never run before in my life. I played football in college, but like I literally ran like 10 yards, and that was like it, right? So, uh, so I started training for a marathon, and that started off with this gradual process. My first goal was to run for 20 minutes straight. Don't care about how long, I mean how far you go, 20 minutes consecutively. Did that, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. Okay, now I'm going to start paying attention to distance, and I do my one mile, two mile, two and a quarter, because it kind of hit, like, I, I didn't go from two to three that easily. Uh, two and a quarter, two and a half. Once I got to three miles, then I, I, I was able to convince a couple buddies of mine to, hey, like, why don't y'all do this with me? And so we started doing a program. And so you run, like, three times during the week, and once on the weekend, you have, like, three-mile run, three-mile run, four-mile run on the weekend. Three-mile run, three-mile run, then you'll run five miles on the weekend. And we just kept progressing to the day where it was a 14-mile day. Now, that was a big day for me because I went from 12 to 14 from one weekend to the next. And for any runners, you know what that means. It's like right in the middle of that is a half marathon. Now, I didn't sign up for a race. I just went to the LSU Lakes. It was a big day. And we started running around the lakes. There's a long track you could take at LSU uh, where you could run around. And twice, you almost get to the 14 miles that we were trying to run. And I remember when I finished, I did run 14 miles that day. I don't know how long it took. Who cares? Uh, I remember when I finished, having that initial feeling of like, yes, I did. I accomplished that. I just ran a half marathon plus some. And then I thought, 
12 more miles? No way. See, a marathon is 26.2 miles. I would have had to run two, four, 12 more. So what did I do? Hopefully you're not thinking this is going to end with some glorious marathon runner. That's not me. I stopped. I quit. Like, I'm done. <laughs> I ran my 14, and I ran, some, I ran for a while. And, you know, some of you know I had surgery last, last year, hurt my knee at youth camp, of all places. And uh, I, now I'm not allowed to run. I have, I have uh, some arthritis in my knee. But uh, I say that because what we're going to talk about this morning is this process of sanctification. And sanctification is, is a process. It is, is the means through which God works in us over time to work out our sinful nature and to replace it with affections for Christ. That's the way training for a marathon is. I would make gradual progress, and sometimes I would have some fallback. Like, like oh, I was supposed to run five today, but I just only have four in me. But then I would keep going, and I would persevere, and I would make it. It's similar to that, to my experience, only the difference is with sanctification, we're actually going to make it one day. Because it's not based on our effort. It's based on God's. Because, see, God is the one at work. And what we started last week as we were going verse by verse uh, through this study is that we saw the common promise for all of us, that all of us share as saints, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And that's where we're going this morning is as Paul is continuing with this, this idea of this work of God that he started with our redemption, with our call to saving grace, and then he's going to carry it out through this sanctifying process, making us more and more into the image of Christ, who we were designed to be until the day of glorification. And he's going to accomplish that for us. So that's where we're going this morning. Last week we began our, our study and we learned a little bit about the city of Philippi. So I'm not going to go into as much detail as what Blake did for us. But I, I do think there are some things that are important to remember as we progress through this whole letter. One, Philippi is a secular city. It's a very progressive city in this day. It is a city in which they, they had a lot of both political and social influence. And then we also learn about who Paul would have been thinking about in his opening lines when he said, to all the saints in Philippi. And Blake pointed us back to Acts chapter 16. There's Lydia, who is a fashion designer, who is a foreigner in the city. There's a girl who was once possessed by a demon that Paul delivered. And then there's the jailer, the military GI, who persecuted Paul in prison and then was led to saving faith by Paul when Paul didn't escape. And then there's households involved as well. So these are the people that Paul would be thinking about. This is the church, right? It's this church in an urban setting where they are the minority, and he's writing to them to encourage them. What we learned last week is this is the only letter that Paul wrote where he is not primarily focused on correcting behavior. He's not trying to modify what they're doing, he's actually writing them, this is a letter of encouragement to a church that is functioning properly. It's a healthy church. 
And so we don't see some of the same tones. And I say that because as we get into the study and he starts talking about sanctification, I know the tendency that we have, our personalities in our, in our body, is we're going to think about where we fail and we're going to think about how we can correct it. And I want to make sure you realize that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. He will do it. And so as best I can, whenever I have the opportunity to preach from this text, I'm going to try to do it in the same way Paul was doing it to the Philippian church. I'm going to try to encourage you. However, it's based on the fact that this church was functioning properly. So if there are those of us who are in this room where we're not there right now, then I do have a responsibility to then point you to modify your behavior to correct your line of thinking the way Paul did in all of his other letters. And so, we began this letter last week. We were easily able to pick up on the emotion with which Paul writes. We know Paul is in prison as he's, as he's writing this letter to this small congregation, that, a church that was established about 15 years prior to him writing the letter. He says he writes in a spirit of thanksgiving and with great joy. He says things like, I hold you in my heart and I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. It's a very intimate letter for Paul. It's an emotional one. So this letter is written to this group by this man who is in prison because he's seen them partner with him in the advance of the gospel and he is trying to encourage them to press on to grow in their faith. In our text this morning, Paul will lay out for the Philippian church the content of the prayer that he mentioned in verse 4. Paul was praying for sanctification. So let's read our text this morning. It's Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He wrote, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now asking you to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray that you would sanctify your church this morning as we learn about what sanctification is. We ask you to reveal yourself. Make yourself known to us through the words on these pages. Because it is through knowledge of you that sanctification comes. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. As we look at this prayer that Paul is laying out for the Philippian church. I, I think we can break it down into four sections. We've got the what of the prayer, the why of the prayer, the means through which those things will be accomplished, and then the ultimate purpose. The what, the why, the means, and the ultimate purpose. So let's look at the what. This is the content of his prayer. He starts off in verse 9. And he says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now I want to point out one more time he is not saying, it is my prayer that you would love people. He is not saying that you would love God. He starts off with saying, it is my prayer. He is petitioning the Father, the one who will accomplish this, okay? He is asking God to do the divine work that God has to do. 
He's not modifying their behavior. He's not correcting them and exhorting them. He is encouraging them by saying, hey, I'm asking God to do this for you. And the first thing he says is, I am praying to him that he would cause your love to abound. So the first question we may ask ourselves as we read this is, who are they loving? Who is the recipient of this abounding love? Is it God? Is it Christ? Is it each other? I think the answer to that question is yes. All of that. I think in Paul's immediate um, context and what he's saying here is he's actually pointing to the love of God. And I say that because as you, as you press on and continue, he talks about knowledge and discernment that would abound as well. And so I think he's pointing to this idea of, hey, I'm praying that your love for God would abound. After all, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through, 30, uh, through 38, a, a passage of scripture that many of us are well acquainted with. Even our children's, in children's church, they've memorized this greatest command. Starting in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So yes, we are to love God, and Paul is praying that they would do that. But as we also see in Scripture, if we are to be lovers of God, we must also love the Son. If we're going to love the Father, Jesus said in, in John chapter 8 that we must also love Him. John chapter 8, verse 32. I'm sorry, 42. Jesus is getting ready to just basically declare to the Pharisees that they are of their father, the devil. That's where he's going with this conversation. And he said in verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Our belonging to God is revealed in the fact that we must also love Jesus, the Son. And at the same time, as we have been loved by Christ, we know that the second greatest command is to love one another. Love others as ourselves. That in that same conversation that Jesus was having to the Pharisees, he said, hey, the greatest command is that you love the Lord your God with everything you have. The second is like it, that you would love others as much as you love yourself. And so there's this connection that we see in Scripture throughout where we start off with this love of God, but that manifests itself into a love of the, of the Son, which then progresses into this overflowing love for others. And the way it was described to me, I remember when I was in college, and it has always helped me, is that if you see an issue here on the horizontal where you have their struggle in loving one another, it's an indication that there's something wrong with the vertical because out of a love for God and a love for His Son, we will love one another. And so if you're starting, if you, if you think about and consider where you are with this, am I abounding in love? See, that, that word is used to describe an overflowing love. It's abounding. It's multiplying. 
And if there's, a, if there's an issue there, it's because there's an issue here with our love for the Father. Again, this isn't like other letters in which Paul would encourage them to pursue a love that is lacking or that is absent. But he speaks of prayer for their love to abound more and more. What he's asking is, Father, take that thing which you've planted in this church, this love and passion for you, for your son, and for one another, and multiply that. Produce more fruit from that. The implication for us is that this is an aspect of our sanctification, of becoming more and more holy. So I would ask you to just stop for a second and consider the question, do we love God more today than we did a year ago? Think about where you were a year ago. Do you love him more today than you did at that point? Think about your passion for Christ and your, 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 your love for Him. Are you more enamored with Christ today than where you were January 1st of this year where we came into the new year with so much um, a feeling of, of being zealous for Him? And if you're a member of this church, I would ask you to consider, do you love one another and do you love our community more today than when this church was planted here five years ago, five and a half years ago. If you're not a member of this body, I'm going to ask you to consider the question, do you love the saints? Do you love the church? Do you love your community more today than you did yesterday? Because what we see in Scripture is that this is sanctification. We should be growing in our love for the Father, for the Son, for our community, and for one another. So I ask, how do you answer those questions? If your response to those questions is, yes, yes I do. And I expect there are some who do. Then I'm going to encourage you the same way Paul is encouraging this church in Philippi. Grow in that. Pray that the Father would produce more of that in your life. And if your answer to that question is, man, I don't know. I've grown kind of cold to, the, to God. I'm a little callous. I'm comfortable with where I am. If I th really consider where I've been, I haven't really been pushing into that anymore. Then I would challenge you to ask him to change that too. Because the, the, the solution for both of us, whether we're passionate and loving the Father today and loving the Son and loving one another, or whether or not we're, we're not, is the same thing. We must grow. And the Father has to bring that into our lives. Now, how do we do that? The answer lies in the second half of the verse and the rest of the what, the content of Paul's prayer. He says in verse 9 that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. If you're going to increase your love, the solution is not to try to love more. That's not it. It's not to sit down, if you're like me, you like to use a whiteboard or a notepad, and kind of sketch out, okay, what are different ways that I can love better? 
It's not to watch a, a, a video of like a, somebody returning from overseas in the military, surprising their kids, or watching like the announcement of an adoption video to kind of stir your affections and then say, okay, now I can love somebody. It isn't to be more sacrificial. It isn't to come to church and sing songs of praise to God, hoping that the emotion of the music would cause you to really think about the love that you have for the Father and for the Son. The solution is to know God more. Our love will abound the more we know who God is. It starts with Him. And so if we're going to grow in our love, we have to grow in our knowledge. And the word Paul uses here for knowledge is, is the word epignosis. And it's a word that is not talking about an academic type of knowledge. This isn't something that you just merely pull from a textbook to learn about God. This is talking about full knowledge through experiencing God. You know who he is. This is where he shows up in your life in those tough moments. And he reveals himself to you. His character. He, he shows you his grace. He manifests his mercy in your life. He makes it known to you what it means for you to be forgiven. It's through this experience, this experiential knowledge of God, that love will abound. That will grow. And there is a part of this that does require us to renew our minds daily. So there is a part of this where we're going into Scripture. When we study Scripture, we're saying, okay, God, this is your self-revelation to the world. You are revealing who you are. And so I'm looking for you. I'm not looking for David, the one who slayed the giant. I'm looking to see, okay, God, what are you doing in that? And the more you know him, the more you experience him, we grow, and our love will abound. So love is a natural byproduct of knowing God. If you'll hold your place in Philippians and turn to 1 John chapter 4, what we see is as our knowledge of Him increases, so does our capacity to love. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, and I'll probably read a verse at a time and then explain it. He starts off and he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You want to know if somebody knows God? Do they love? You want to see love in your life? Know God. That's where it comes from. Love comes from God. The opposite is also true in verse 8. If we don't know God, we won't love. We can't. He says that anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And so if you're not seeing love in your life, there might be an indication that you don't fully know who He is. Because if you do, He is love. And it will produce love in your heart, in your life. 1 John 4, 8 I mean, 4, 9 through 10, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As we experience all that God is in scripture and in our lives, what we come to know is the way in which he has manifested his love to us, and it is through his son, Jesus Christ. That is why there is a connection between the love of the father and the love of the son in our lives. Because the more we know God, the more he reveals himself to us, we find out that he loves us. And we find out the way in which he loves us is that he gave his son for us. And then we look at the son and we see the son has sacrificed himself for us. He has become the propitiation for our sins. He has paid the price for us. Laid down his life to take the punishment that we deserve. And so when you, when you look at that and you experience that and you understand what that means, so that parents, whenever you see your child rebelling against you and yet you continue to pour out love and grace and mercy toward them, you're not just thinking about that child, but now you're thinking about, this is what God has done to me. Married people, when, you, when your spouse has sinned against you, when they have just irritated the mess out of you, and you respond with pursuing them because you know that God has pursued you through his son, Jesus Christ. You're not thinking about the love that you have for your wife your th or, your, or your husband, sorry. It's normally the other way. But you are thinking about the love that the Father has for you. And you experience it. You know him. And it produces fruit. It overflows. That love that you're experiencing overflows into the way you love then your child or your spouse. Whether it's a friend, a parent, happy Mother's Day. Moms aren't perfect either. But man, they're so gracious. They're so loving. They're sacrificial. And in that, we see a model of Christ. We see the love of the Father. And so on Mother's Day, we celebrate the moms, but we also celebrate the good Father who has given them to us. The love that they show us is, is just a mere symbol. It's a shadow of the greater love that the Father has poured out on us. So Paul prayed for this church to experience God. He's asking the Father, reveal yourself to them. Increase their knowledge of you so that they would abound more and more in love. He also prayed that they would grow in their discernment. That is, discernment of God's will, that they would be able to understand what that is. As their love for God abounded more and more based on a greater knowledge, a complete knowledge of who he is, their ability to judge God's will would grow deeper as well. Because you're well acquainted with him. You know who he is. You know his heart. You know his ways, his plans, his purposes. And so when you're having to make decisions and consider, am I to go here or, th or there? I know the Father's heart, and I'm good either way sometimes. And so we see the completion of Paul's what? This abounding love built upon, built upon abounding knowledge of God and abounding discernment of God's will. See, love is not just a feeling. Love is often, more often than not, it's a choice. It's a decision we make. And that's what we see when we consider the love of God. It's a decision. It's an action. He, has take, he had made a decision that he was going to love his creation. 
and it's built upon a foundation, not something that's whimsical, not something where it just blows us here and there. It's based upon the solid foundation, the truth of who he is. And so that's why if we're going to grow in love, we need to grow in knowledge. We pursue knowledge of him. As we do that, it will come. In verse 10 through 11, we see the why of Paul's prayer. And there are three different aspects here. There's an immediate aspect, there's a future aspect, and there's one that's eternal. So we have this immediate thing where he's saying, hey, in your Christian life, this is why I'm praying for these things. There's a future aspect in this. There's a future day coming. That is why I'm praying for these things. And then there's an eternal aspect saying, for all eternal, eternality, I am praying for these things for that reason. So look at verse 10 where we start off with the immediate why. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. I'm praying that you grow deeper in love, deeper in knowledge, deeper in discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, so that they would be able to determine what is excellent. Notice that it doesn't say good. Because he's, he's writing to the saints. He's writing to a group of people who know the difference between good and evil. What he's writing to them is that they would have, he's praying that they would have the ability to discern the difference between what is good and what is best. And there is a difference. His prayers that they would be able to determine what matters most. What really counts in this life. And this is something that can only be done with spiritual maturity. The Holy Spirit regenerating our souls and we respond to the call of the gospel. There's, there's this thing that happens where we are found justified. We are adopted into the family. Youth, you should be catching on to this because we've been going through this. But you've been adopted into the family of God and now as you're walking this Christian life, you're now being sanctified. So he is working out those things that are evil in your heart and replacing them with something that is holy. But it's a process and so there's this maturity that's necessary. The kind of maturity that will lead Paul to later on state in this letter that he can do all things through Christ. Whether it's hanging out with the wealthy fashion designer Lydia or being persecuted in prison facing death, he knows because of his spiritual maturity he can do all things. The same, the same way that it leads Paul to say, that, hey, I know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know the difference between good and what's best. And that's what he's praying for this church. That they would not be caught up in things that are trivial, but that they would focus on what is best for the kingdom. What is best to accomplish the mission that God has given his church. How often do we consider whether or not the things in our lives, lives are best? I couldn't help but think about 1 Corinthians 10 when I was reading this. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 is a completely different letter from Philippians. Church in Corinth has some major issues. But one of the things Paul wrote to them, he's saying, hey, look, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And I couldn't help but think about that in our lives. There are things in our lives that we're pursuing right now that are good things. 
We just celebrated accomplishing education, right? Completion of something. Starting something and finishing it out. Did we ever consider if that's what was best? Not for our future on this earth, because this earth will pass away. But did we ever consider if that's what was best for the kingdom? Because that's what, that's what Paul's talking about. Spiritual maturity is able to discern and approve those things that are excellent and to go after those things. Not irrational. I'm not talking about just, oh, well, I feel like going to do this thing. It's through much prayer, through much maturity in the faith that we're able to discern this is the most excellent thing. So we must grow deeper in our love of God, built on our knowledge of God and discernment of His will, so that we have the maturity to stop and ask that question, what is the best, not, is what, not what is good, and to pursue that, walk in obedience with that. The second aspect of Paul's why is the future aspect. He says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That future day. There will be a day that is coming in the future. And what he is praying for is that they would be found pure and blameless. As they are being sanctified, they are being purified. As they are being sanctified, they are being, they are being excused, blamed, blameless for all of their actions. His desire for them is to be fully sanctified so that on the day of Christ they get to hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, understand this. You're never going to get there until that day. Okay? Like, there's, there's no, th no thing where we as the saints are going to achieve perfection prior to that day. But we are commanded to strive in holiness, to work towards that, to allow God to, to bring to completion what he began in us. And so there's this discipline that we have to have, and we have to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit as that, that gospel faith that we've been given is manifested out in our hearts, in our daily lives. But there's a day in the future, and Paul's praying for that day that they would be found blameless and pure on that day. And that's what sanctification is. It's Him working out all of our impurities. We're already justified because of what Christ has accomplished. And we've been covered with the righteousness of Christ. But at the same time, He is refining us. He is purifying us. And he is molding us into the image that we were designed to be. And so I, I encourage you two things. One, be patient. Be patient with yourself. I say that because I don't think I'm talking to much people who abuse grace. It'd be the other way around. I'd tell you, hey, get with it. But I think that sometimes we get frustrated and we get down on ourselves when we aren't yet glorified. We forget the fact that he who began the good work in us will bring it to completion. So keep pressing on. But be patient with yourself. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. But God's grace will be there every single day to pick you back up. And he will give you the strength to keep going. So be patient with yourself and also be patient with others. It's easy to get frustrated when you see somebody that you care about, somebody in your church body 
and they stumble and they fall. And they continue to trip over themselves. I would encourage you to be patient with them as well because the Father is going to bring that to completion also. And instead of getting frustrated, celebrate what you're seeing God doing in their stumbling. Be a part of calling them to repentance. Be a part of encouraging them to walk in holiness. Because on that day, on the day of Christ Jesus, you'll get to stand side by side with them and celebrate that now you are living in that third aspect for all eternal where Paul says that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. This speaks to the end of sanctification as it gives way to glorification. It's not talking about that, that you are producing righteousness. It's talking about the fact that we would be filled, full of it. That the righteousness with which we were covered when Jesus died on the cross is now filled inside of us. We are righteous people. And we will be glorified right alongside our Savior and our King. Where when we will no longer be pursuing righteousness, but that we will be found fully righteous. And this is our hope. This is our path. This is that, that future hope that we, we, we strain towards walking in faith. Knowing that one day our faith will be sight and we will get there. And for all eternity, all eternity, why do I keep saying that? For all eternity, we will be filled with the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that only comes through him. The means for this, he says, is through Christ. And so we, we know God. From our knowledge of God, we love God. We love others. And it produces in us maturity, holiness, righteousness, and the one who made all of these things, who made us, and then made all of these things possible, is pouring out his grace. It is through Christ that God's grace and love has overflowed into our lives. And it leads us on to our ultimate purpose. To the glory and the praise of God. I've said this many times in, in, within this body. If you ever want to know why, the, the question why, if you're one of those people, every response you say, okay, well, but why does that matter? Okay, well, okay, now you give me a response, why? Okay, God loves me, why? Caitlin, I've asked you many times why. Because I'm trying to get you to the point where at the end of the, all the whys, it's for the glory of God. That's why. Because God, in His sovereign graciousness and goodness, has decided that He wants to glorify Himself, that He wants to make Himself known. So why does God save me? Because of His glory. Why does God want me to be sanctified? Why is He going to bring this to completion? It's for His glory. Why should we go evangelize? Why should we participate in the mission of God to reach the nations for his sake? Because he wants to glorify himself. That means he wants to make himself known so that people would know his grace, that people would know his mercy, that people would know that he is a just God who poured out his wrath for, for sin upon his son. He didn't excuse it. He didn't, he didn't just turn a blind eye towards it, but it had to be dealt with. 
All of these things are working together for the glory of God. It is the chief end of man. It's the answer to all the whys. The implications for us this morning is to persevere in our pursuit of holiness, to continue to press into this process of sanctification, and we do that by increasing our knowledge of who He is. So we need to be a people of the book. We need to be a people who are committed to reading and studying Scripture because it is in Scripture that He reveals Himself. But it doesn't just stop there, right? Because, again, what Paul is praying for is not an academic knowledge about God. He wants us to know who He is. And so every single day of our lives, we are looking for the ways in which God is revealing Himself to us. As we increase our knowledge, we increase our discernment of His will, and then love is produced. And through that, we obtain spiritual maturity to approve what really matters in this life. To be able to discern the difference between good and best. And one day, we will be found pure and blameless in the sight of our Father on the day of Christ, and we will be filled with His righteousness. All this made possible through Christ for the glory of God alone. As we continue in this letter, we're going to look at how Paul is encouraging this church to grow, to go deeper. And that's going to be the encouragement we have. That we would not grow cold, that we would not grow comfortable, that we would continue to push in to what he's asking us to do. As His grace overflows into our lives, it's going to overflow in our love for Him, and our love for the Son, and in our love for others. Let's pray. Father, we ask You this morning to increase our knowledge of You, to, to reveal Yourself to us from the pages of Scripture and the interactions we have with our relationships on this earth as we view your creation and in all things in our daily lives. Because we know that as we increase in our knowledge, you will sanctify us. That you will produce love that is steadfast. You will give us the ability to have discernment to be able to decide and know what is best for your kingdom, for our ultimate purpose of not glorifying ourselves, but glorifying you. And Father, we know that all of this is possible because of your Son, Jesus. And so we praise you this morning. Thank you for starting something in us. And thank you for giving, the, giving us that common promise that we all share, that wherever it is we are on this path of sanctification, that you will one day bring it to completion. Remind us of your goodness when we fail. Remind us of our current position of justification when we stumble. And let us walk in freedom to be obedient to your will. 
pray for the, this next time of worship that, that hopefully we've, we've been able to learn a little bit more about you, that you have increased our knowledge of you this morning so that we could respond with words that express the love that we have for you as we sing songs of praise for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.